0: Hey everybody and welcome to Breaking Biotech. Thanks for being with me here today. My name is Matt and if you like the show you can help out by clicking the like or subscribe button. You can also donate using the Patreon link in the description below. And with Patreon there's a variety of different tiers. My personal favorite is the $3 tier because it gives you access to the Discord channel. And there we have a good group of people where we talk about companies in more real time and about what's going on. And you know the biotech market has been in a rough spot in the last couple of weeks but I'm hoping that this nice hammer candle that we saw on Friday is a good sign and that hopefully we'll go back to all-time highs. But anyway, I want to thank the guys at Biotech Plays for hosting my Ask Me Anything. So go on there and check it out. I think it's still available. You might just have to search for it, but it was a lot of fun. I got a lot of questions and it was fun answering them and kind of organizing my thoughts in a coherent way in in text format because i feel like i'm so used to doing this in video format it was a little bit different for me but it was a lot of fun so thank you guys for that and definitely go check out biotech plays it's a good subreddit for biotech investing and with that i want to talk about what we're going to discuss today and i'm excited to be back because we're going to be doing a follow-up to my neurodegeneration video and what I wanted to do today is talk about a few more companies that are also in the neurodegeneration Alzheimer's disease space. And the reason for this is a lot of people wanted these tickers as well. And I thought it would be good to add them to the group that I discussed last time and see how they all compare together. So today we're going to talk about a Thyropharma, a Novus, and Longevron. And each one of these companies has a bit of a unique molecule that they're trying to commercialize. So it's going to be a fun show. And we're going to talk all about that. So with that, let's get right into it. And the first thing I want to mention, of course, is you know what we're really dealing with here when we're looking at specifically companies in the neurodegeneration space. Now, I'm going to belabor this slide even less than I did last time. But basically, for good phase three data, I feel like we could expect a company to trade between at a minimum, really, of 10 to 20 billion dollars of market cap. And for companies that are kind of earlier in the pipeline, I would say if they've shown some good phase 1B or some good early phase 2A data, we can expect them to trade around a $1 billion market cap. And that seems to be the case so far. And there's obviously tons of information that we can use to say whether or not they should be trading at a higher value or a lower value than that. But that's generally what I'm going into this with. And using the data that's available out there, you can really make your own assessment of what you think is a fair value for some of these companies. But anyway, just to show this slide quickly because we need to know what we're dealing with here. So keep all that in mind as we look at the market caps of these different companies today. And the first company I wanna to touch on is a company called Athira Pharma, ticker symbol A-T-H-A. They closed on Friday the 5th at $19.18 a share, giving them a market cap of $700 million. Their Q3 2020 net loss was $8.5 million, and they had a Q3 2020 current assets of $232 million. And then they also did an offering in February of this year, adding another $103 million to their balance sheet. Their Q3 2020 current liabilities sit at $8 million. And to give some background of the company, they went IPO in September of 2020 at $17 per share. So they're not trading at too much of a premium from that. But for anybody looking to take a position in the short term, I do want to remind you that the lockup expiration occurs on March 17th, and an additional 12 million shares that were previously locked up from the IPO are now going to be added to the float, which is at $23.7 million today. So companies that have this lockup expiration, I caution against taking a long position in only because the dilution that's going to occur after the lockup is going to put some pressure on the stock price. So keep that in mind. But... The company is looking at commercializing an asset that targets the hepatocyte growth factor pathway, and it's also known as the MET receptor, and they're doing this to try and treat different CNS disorders. So they're specifically using a compound called ATH1017, and this was previously known as NDX1017 if you're looking in the literature, and they're trying to treat Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease with this. And then they also have a small molecule version of this where they're going to be looking at neuropsychiatric disorders like depression. And there's some benefits to using a small molecule version versus the other version that they're using, ATH-1017, but I'm not going to focus on that. I'm really just going to talk about the molecule that's going to be treated for Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease. And before we do that, though, I did want to focus a little bit on event-related potential. And I've touched on this on a couple other episodes, but I wanted to go a little bit more in depth because... The main readout that Athira is focusing on is this P300 data point. And so what event-related potential is to give a quick primer? It's a QEEG measurement, but it's a functional version of that. So a lot of companies will show a QEEG measurement of just baseline brain activity. And what this does is it just measures brain electrical activity. And QEEG stands for quantitative electroencephalography. So the baseline measurement is useful, I guess, but what's more impactful is to actually do a sensory event, which is a better surrogate for actual cognitive ability. So what patients do is they'll have headphones on, they'll be played tones that are being given at consistent intervals, and then when a deviant tone is played, they'll have to push a button or something, and then the brain electrical output will come up and it'll look like this. And this is the event-related potential diagram that is normative. And so the p and n refer to the polarity of the peak, p being positive and n being negative. And then the numbers are associated with a normative time after stimulus. So the p100 occurs at 100 milliseconds after the stimulus. n100 is also very close to the 100 millisecond time point. And this is a normative graph because everybody is kind of different. And the latencies are actually associated with cognitive function. So if the N200 or P300 in particular latencies are delayed or increased, it has a associative factor with worsening Alzheimer's disease or mild cognitive impairment. And conversely, if the latencies are improved, you usually have better cognitive function. Now, the early peaks here, the P1, N1, and P2, don't really have much to do with cognition necessarily. They're a lot closer related to just speed at which the brain can receive an image or any kind of sensory input. But cognition has much more to do with this N200 and P300 peak. And, you know, which one is more impactful? Why does one company focus on N200 like Cyclerion versus thyroid which focuses on the P300? I think it has much more to do with a strategic decision than an actual functional one. And the company that's able to show success in N200 but not P300 is just going to focus on their N200 data. And this occurs all the time. And Athyra is doing it here with their P300, presumably. But in relation to the differences, I just wanted to quote one article that outlined this a little bit clearer. And they say here that the N200 component represents an early alteration of cognitive ability, such as target discrimination, while the P300 component reflects information processing, such as target evaluation, judgment, and decision making. So if both were improved, that would probably be a better sign for whatever compound they're testing one or the other might have something to do with cognitive ability, but this is what Athira is focusing on, P300, and it's not gonna be the actual primary endpoint of their eventual pivotal trial, but it is a sign that perhaps if they see an improvement in P300, they might be getting better cognitive effects in patients. So to get to the phase 1b data, we're looking here at Alzheimer's disease patients that were treated with a 40 milligram subcutaneous dose for eight days. And you can see already, this is a very small trial. The placebo group only has four patients, whereas the treatment group only has seven. But at an eight day treatment, we see here that the group that was treated with ATH-1017 got an improvement in peak P300 latency of 73 milliseconds. And if you look here at the actual breakdown of each patient, every one of the patients that was treated with ATH-1017 saw an improvement in P300 latency And there's one patient here that didn't show that much of a difference, but all of them were trending towards that improvement. The placebo group, on the other hand, three out of four showed a worsening, and then one of them showed a slight improvement, but I think that's just noise. So, you know, from the outset, it seems like this is very impressive data. They're able to get this big difference in latency, which is associated with cognitive function, and it's in a very small study. So how is this going to be replicated if they do a bigger study? We're not really sure, but it is decent early data to suggest some improvement in cognitive ability. Now if we were to look at an already existing molecule like donepezil and see how it had an effect on p300 latency, it can give us an insight into whether or not this drug is benchmarking close to it or better or worse. So this is what Athyra is arguing in their corporate presentation and I'm taking this image from that presentation and the study is Thomas et al. 2001 and what they looked at here is the effect of Dinepazil on P300 latency. And we can see here that patients treated with Dinepazil went from a latency of 385 all the way down to 370, 369 milliseconds. So that's an improvement of only 16 milliseconds when treated with Dinepazil. And you can see here that also the 8-as cog trends in the right direction as well. So what Athira is arguing is that their molecule is able to do 73 millisecond improvement in P300 latency Therefore, it's likely to have an even better effect than donepezil. but keep in mind that donepezil made it through all of the hurdles that so many of these Alzheimer's companies can't get through, despite only having a 16 millisecond improvement in P300 latency. So to me, what this says is not necessarily that ATH1017 might have a better effect. It's that donepezil might be going through a different mechanism in order to improve cognitive ability, or P300 isn't a good metric of cognition. And we could absolutely see that perhaps the improvement in P300 latency isn't enough to cause an improvement in ADAS COG or other things, and that Danepazil could make it through these hurdles without needing to change that. So I wanted to also show some data from uh, Yuan C et al, 2014, and they looked here, they did the study themselves, and then they also compared their data to other studies, where they showed that there was only a 5-millisecond improvement in peak P300 latency with Dinepezil treatment, and another study they cited here showed actually a one millisecond worsening in P300 latency. So Dinepezil is still able to get those good cognitive effects, even without really an effect on P300 latency. So I think we just need to be careful when we look at only one readout and one that isn't going to be included in the final phase three data set that this might not be what we need to show as an improvement in order to get those cognitive effects or to get approval. So keep all of that in mind as we move forward. But to highlight some of the upcoming catalysts, Athira has two trials that we need to focus on. They have a pivotal phase 2-3 in Alzheimer's disease that was initiated in September of 2020, and they're going to be looking at 240 to 300 patients, placebo, and two other dose groups, and it's going to be a 26-week trial. Now, the endpoints are actually the ones that we care about. They're looking at ADAS-Cog 11 ADCS, GCIC, and a bunch of other cognition endpoints that are ones that we want to see data from. The top-line data is expected to come in 2022, so it is going to take a while, and they haven't really hinted at whether or not there's going to be an interim endpoint. Another study that we need to look at is the phase 2 that was initiated in Alzheimer's disease in November of 2020 using ATH1017. And this is a smaller study, up to 75 patients, and they're doing a placebo as well as two other dose groups. And this is going to be another 26-week trial with an open-label extension. The endpoints in this trial, though, they're going to be focusing on P300 safety, and they're also going to do ADAS-Cog 11 Now, this is a good thing because we're going to be able to see whether or not the ADAS-Cog 11 is actually affected by the treatment of ATH-1017, which we haven't seen up to date. If the P300 latency is correlated with ADAS Cog 11 then that's great, but I really don't think we need to see the P300 improvement unless it comes with the ADAS COG 11 improvement as well. So what they say here is that they were going to read this out before the Pivotal Trial readout, and the top line date is expected in 2022. So I would like to see an interim endpoint between now and the end of the year, and we just don't know whether or not that's gonna come out. So for that reason, it might be worth it to take a position if you're bullish on the mechanism Uh, before 2022. But the company is also filing an IND in Parkinson's disease in the beginning half of this year. And they're going to be initiating a phase two in the second half of 2021. They have some other indications that they're looking at, but those are largely preclinical. So for that reason, I'm not focusing on it. But Again, like the other companies I talked about in my last episode, this is very early data that we've seen and it's only one readout and one that we're not super interested in given that another molecule like Denepazil was able to get approval without showing much of an improvement in p300 latency. So keep that in mind. And what I wanted to do quickly is touch on cyclerion because one thing that came with all this p300 research is some interesting info on n200 latency. And The study that I cited before did N200 latency too, and what they showed is that control patients had an N200 latency of 267 milliseconds. Alzheimer's disease patients had a latency of 316, so a very large increase, and then Alzheimer's disease patients treated with the had a latency at N200 of 305. So it was an 11 millisecond improvement in N200 latency and donepezil is able to improve cognitive function. If we go back to the Cyclerion data, we can see here that the change in N200 latency in the 70 and older group was an average of 1.4 milliseconds. So Cyclerion's drug is able to improve N200 latency by 1.4 milliseconds compared to donepezil, which can improve it 11 milliseconds. So keep that in mind. The N200 latency, P300 latency, it just might not be a very good surrogate for cognitive function. Now, it does concern me that the drug that Cyclerion's using, CY6463, isn't even able to improve the latency to that of donepezil, yet they're touting this as a real victory here. So something to be mindful of. I'm still holding on to Cyclerion because I think the bar is so low for them that any positive data in MILAS could really send the stock skyrocketing but keep all this in mind as we uh, move forward and with that I want to focus on another company called Anovis, ticker symbol ANVS and they traded on Friday the 5th of March at $24.86 a share giving them a market cap of $173 million their Q3 2020 net loss was 1 million bucks and their Q3 2020 current assets sit at 9.4 million with almost no Q3 2020 current liabilities this company went public in January of 2020 at $6 a share. So they've seen a really nice run-up in uh, the last year throughout COVID, throughout everything. They're they're looking pretty good compared to their IPO price. And what the company's doing, their corporate presentation wasn't very specific on what they're actually targeting here. But the compound is called ANVS 401. And they say here, I'm quoting from the corporate presentation, that it's the only drug to improve axonal transport the information highway of the nerve cell by attacking multiple neurotoxic proteins and what they're looking to get approval in is alzheimer's disease parkinson's disease as well as other ones but i'm going to be focusing specifically on those two for the purposes of this presentation they have other compounds as well but for me i'm just going to focus on anvs-401 or it's also called posifen they showed some figures from a proof of concept study that i'm going to dive a little bit deeper in here But the information on the website allsforum.org, which I think everybody should check out if they're interested in the space, because this website really aggregates tons of data on all the compounds and makes it very easy to understand. But what they talk about in relation to ANVS-401 or posiphen is that this compound is the pure positive enantiomer form of fenserine. So I don't want to get bogged down in a discussion about chirality and enantiomers, but It's a version of fenserine that has a very, very similar structure, like the exact same structure, but it's a mirrored version. And this has functional implications, as we'll see, but um, that's what this molecule is. So they go on to say that both posifin and fenserine reduce production of amyloid precursor protein by blocking its translation. And they say that fenserine also inhibits acetylcholinesterase, while posifin does not. And it's dosed by mouth, and it is able to enter the brain. So a couple things here. It seems like the main mechanism of these two compounds is to reduce amyloid precursor protein, or APP. And for those who don't know, APP is the precursor protein to amyloid beta. And we've talked a lot about the amyloid hypothesis because so many molecules have gone through the clinic and have failed when they're trying to reduce the amount of A beta in the neurons. So What posiphene and fensurine do is they reduce A-beta by reducing amyloid precursor protein. So it's going to be acting through a similar mechanism of these other compounds that we've talked about related to the amyloid hypothesis, but it does it much earlier upstream in the pathway. The other thing I wanted to note is that fensurine inhibits acetylcholinesterase, while posiphene does not. So posiphene is the molecule that we're talking about today, and fensurine has additional activity to inhibit acetylcholinesterase. And for those who don't remember, denepazil's primary mechanism of action is by inhibiting acetylcholinesterases to increase the amount of acetylcholine in the brain and improve cognitive function. So fenserine also has the ability to block APP translation and inhibit acetylcholinesterase, yet fenserine failed in phase three trials. And I'm, I'm quoting what I saw in All's Forum under POSIFIN. That Fenserian was stopped after it failed to improve cognition or clinical measures in two phase three trials, and this was done in 2005. So, this from the outset makes me very concerned about Posifin because it does not have any acetylcholinesterase inhibition activity, but it is able to improve by reducing amyloid precursor protein translation the amount of A beta. So, something to be mindful of as we move forward that it has less activity than a molecule that was not approved because it wasn't able to improve cognition. So some other things that are interesting here is that POSIFIN acts on iron response elements in the five prime untranslated region of the APP mRNA to inhibit the protein synthesis. And also POSIFIN is able to block translation of alpha-synuclein mRNA, and this is important for Parkinson's disease. So I'm not gonna touch too much on that, but it is an interesting tidbit that the company's seen. Okay, now to get to the data, there's only one proof-of-concept study that I've seen in humans. And what they did is they treated patients 4 times with a 60 milligram dose for 10 days of this molecule, POSIFIN or ANVS-401. In general, the safety was pretty well tolerated. They got 17% of patients that had some GI effects in healthy volunteers, 25% saw some dizziness, and then 20% of patients with MCI actually saw some GI-related effects. So. Overall, the safety is pretty good, and the data that they show here is that treatment with posifin was able to reduce the amount of soluble amyloid precursor protein, alpha and beta, almost to the levels of healthy volunteers. So they see a pretty good effect on patients in reducing the amount of amyloid precursor protein. They also saw a big improvement in the reduction of total tau, and I'm not going to talk much about tau, but it is a protein that's implicated in Alzheimer's disease. So they're seeing a very good reduction in levels of APP and tau in patients that have MCI. Now, like I said before, we have seen in a number of other trials that antibodies that are targeted towards amyloid beta are able to reduce the levels of amyloid beta in the brain, but they don't actually have that effect on cognition. So this is nice to see, but we also need to see those cognitive readouts before we can get too excited. Another thing that the company shows here, and I'm just blowing this up, is the impact of CNS inflammatory markers on patients that are treated with ANVS-401. And they see a big decrease in complement 3, MCP-1, YKL-40, soluble CD14, and an increase in factor HF. So just more biomarker data to suggest that, in fact, treatment with possiphon is able to improve inflammation in the CSF. All right, now to touch on the upcoming catalysts, They have a phase one, two study in Alzheimer's disease in collaboration with the Alzheimer's disease cooperative study. And this is a double blind placebo controlled study in 24 early Alzheimer's patients. And I have the MMSC here. They're dosing up to 180 milligrams for 23 to 25 days in split into three different doses per day. The estimated completion date of this was in December 31st of 2020. So we should be seeing a readout from this pretty soon from the company. And here they assess safety, biomarkers, and cognition. And the cognition readouts are actually ones that we care about ADAS COG 12, MMSE, and the NPI, which I touched on with the Cassava trial. They also looked at NPI. They also have a phase one, two study in Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease. And now, when I say phase one, two, the NCT page on clinicaltrials.gov says it's a one, two study, but the corporate presentation says it's a phase two study. So, you know, to what extent is the distinction important? I don't think it matters unless they're able to show you know, impressive data. So it doesn't matter too much. But this is also a double-blind placebo-controlled study in 28 plus 40 Alzheimer's disease or Parkinson's disease patients. And it's daily dosing of up to 80 milligrams of posifin for 25 days. The estimated completion date here is September 1st of 2021. And here they're assessing treatment, emergent adverse events, biomarkers, as well as cognition, and the appropriate readouts for Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's disease. So what they say in the corporate presentation is that they are expecting to give us an update in Q1 of 2021. So this should be happening in the next three weeks because that's the end of the quarter. And they're going to be doing this in their Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease trial with a dose response follow-up in the summer of 2021. So Anova seems very committed to providing updates in their studies, which is great. I feel like when companies have very large gaps in their catalysts it can be a real uh, depressing effect on the stock but Anovis is not doing that one thing i wanted to note here is that the proof of concept study that i showed in the previous slide used a daily dose of 240 milligrams they dosed patients four times 60 milligrams daily and what they're doing here is actually quite a bit less of a dosing regimen In the Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease trial, they're only dosing up to 80 milligrams for 25 days. So they're cutting the dose down quite a bit from the data that showed a very large impact on soluble amyloid precursor protein. They're cutting it down quite a bit in this study, which has me a little bit concerned. In the phase one, two, and Alzheimer's disease specifically, they're only cutting down the dose to 180 milligrams. So I'm less concerned about that, but keep in mind that the only data we can see here that was the most effective was in this 240 milligram dose so that's something to be mindful of and again overall with Anovis, i don't like that we don't see any real cognition data here we really don't know what we're going into when it comes to these readouts because there has been no real cognitive assessment in previous trials so this to me is a very high risk play same with the thyra because of what i mentioned before but that's Anovis in a nutshell It is going to be a huge mover for the stock if we see positive data here, given the facts surrounding the stock, it's trading at such a low market cap right now, and we should see a readout in the next three or four weeks. So, you know, if you'd like a high risk, high reward potential play, Anovus might be the one for you. With that, let's move on to Longevron Inc. Ticker symbol LGVN, and they traded on Friday the 5th at $6.83 a share, giving them a market cap of $128 million bucks. Their Q3 2020 net loss was $2.4 million with a Q3 2020 current assets of $2.2 million, plus the IPO capital raise that gave them an additional $26.6 million. And this could be more. They did like an upsized offering as well afterwards, but we don't really know what that amount is. The Q3 2020 current liabilities sit at only $2.8 million. And to give some background, they went IPO in January of this year. I think the stock started trading in February, but... Um, January is when they filed a lot of these forms, and they opened at $10 per share. So the company's trading at quite a discount right now. And what they're doing is developing cell therapies for diseases that affect older individuals. And they say it in a broad way because they're mostly looking at aging fragility or aging frailty, and they're also specifically looking at other indications, but aging frailty is the next readout that we should be most excited about. Their therapy is called B. And this is an off the shelf, what they call medicinal signaling cell or an MSC, but really what it is, is an allogenic mesenchymal stem cell treatment. And I'll talk about this in the next slide. But again, they're looking at aging frailty. They're using it as a vaccine adjuvant. They're looking at metabolic syndrome, Alzheimer's disease, hypoplastic left heart syndrome, as well as some others. But the most exciting one for me in the short term is really this aging frailty readout. And then they're also gonna be doing Alzheimer's disease. To talk a bit about Lomacell B, like I mentioned, it's an allergenic cell therapy that they're isolating from fresh bone marrow of healthy individuals. They don't tell us what the selection process is of those cells, which is kind of frustrating, but they did mention that they do have a license for CD271 positive cells. So that could give us some insight into how they're selecting cells from the bone marrow. But in general, it seems like they're going to be using a mesenchymal stem cell prep in order to treat elderly individuals. And you can use this link to get to a review article that outlines all of the benefits that MSCs are able to show in different diseases. There's lots of data out there that shows that treatment with mesenchymal stem cells can have a real beneficial impact on patients. Now, I don't think I've seen too many commercial successes yet in the clinic, but there are a lot of companies who have these kinds of products in the clinic. And Longevron highlights a lot of them in their corporate presentation, but I'm not really going to touch on them here. Their website is super frustrating to navigate. If uh, anybody's tried to find a press release, it's not very easy to navigate, but I was able to find two publications that had early data and their corporate presentation didn't really show any of this stuff, which I thought was very weird, but I was able to dig them up and I'm gonna show some of the data here just to give us a sense of whether or not human mesenchymal stem cells can have an impact on elderly individuals. All right, and to touch on some of the data, They did two studies, like I mentioned. The phase one study that we're going to look at now was non-randomized, unblinded. They had no placebo, but it was a dose escalation study. So for early studies like phase one, you can expect this to occur just to see if there's any kind of interesting effect here. And then companies will usually move on to phase two and move on to a blinded, placebo controlled, randomized study, which is what they did. So the phase two is a little bit more convincing data because it is randomized, blinded, and placebo controlled. But here, there is still some insights we could potentially gain from the results they show. And so when we're looking at aging frailty, it's really a number of different conditions we're talking about. It's problems of cognitive function, problems of mobility, problems of pulmonary function, and overall quality of life. So the tests that we're looking at here are all related to those different things. And let's get into the data. So the first piece of data I wanna show here is the six minute walk test. And this is a test that evaluates ability to move for six minutes straight. So it tests endurance and mobility really. And what they're showing here is that at the 100 million cell infusion, they see an improvement in the six minute walk test, but they don't actually see that effect in the 200 million cell infusion. So when data is presented in this way, it makes me think that there's no real effect going on here because if a drug does have an effect at a higher dose, you should expect to reproduce that effect, but that's not what they're showing here, and this is actually quite a common theme that we see with the data that Longevron has produced. When it comes to FEV1, which is a metric of pulmonary function, they are able to see that improvement in the 200 million cell dose, but there's not really any durability here because the effect goes away at day 180. Now keep in mind these are all very small patient populations. It's an N of 5 in each group, so for that reason we should give them a little bit of slack here. But by no means is this a slam dunk in either one of these data sets. The next piece of data I want to focus on is from this SF36 physical component score. And this is really an overall quality of life scoring. And what we see here again is that the 100 million cell infusion shows a significant improvement compared to the other ones. But we don't see that improvement in the 200 million cell infusion, which makes me think that this data really is just noise. The one piece of data that I thought was very important in this study was the impact on TNF alpha concentrations. And what they show here is that at 100 million cell infusion and 200 million cell infusion, there was a significant decrease in TNF alpha, which is a metric of inflammation. So this is nice to see. Again, it's relatively early data, like I mentioned, but it is nice to see that they are able to get that inflammatory readout. Then the last piece of data I wanted to show was the effect of these infusions on the MMSE because they tested cognitive function as well. And what they're showing here is that the 200 million cell infusion had an improvement in two points in the MMSE but the 200 million cell infusion had an improvement of zero in these patients. So again we're left kind of wondering what's going on here that if the 100 million cell infusion has an effect but the 200 million cell infusion has no effect, is there really anything going on here? So Let's move on to the phase two data, where this is actually a double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled trial here. And what they looked at are patients that had aging frailty. They did a placebo group, the 100 million cell infusion, and 200 million cell infusion. And what we're looking at are similar tests here. And what they show, again, is that with the six-minute walk test, there's an improvement in the 100 million cell infusion group, but no improvement in the 200 million cell improvement. Looking at another score here, the short physical performance battery score, again, they show that the 100 million cell infusion group had a nice effect at 180 days, but there was no improvement in the 200 million cell group. And then for FEV1, again, the 100 million cell infusion group showed an improvement, whereas the 200 million cell group did not. So this is also confirming to me that there really isn't an effect going on here. To move on with the data, they also looked at cellular makeup here, which is an interesting metric. And one thing that they focus on in telling us is that the expansion of CD8 T cells is associated with aging frailty. So the more CD8 T cells you have, the more likely you are to have uh, conditions associated with aging frailty. And what they show here is that at the 200 million cell infusion group, there was a reduction in the percentage of CD8 cells in these patients, There was also an improvement in the CD4 to CD8 ratio, which is what you would want to see if it's true that the CD8 population is what's associated with aging frailty. There are a couple outliers here, but I still think that if they show significance, it it is relatively meaningful. And then when they did an evaluation of TNF alpha, they were able to reproduce the data in the 100 million cell group, but it did not show statistical significance in the 200 million cell group. And it could be just due to this outlier here. And because this is a relatively small patient population, again, we do have to give them a little bit of slack on the data, but by no means is this a slam dunk. And then they also tout this percentage of B cells expressing LCTNF alpha. So also related to inflammation. And they saw a nice effect in both the 100 million cell infusion and the 200 million cell infusion group. So I think I made my point relatively clear with these studies you need to show that your higher dose is also able to confirm an effect at the lower dose if that is, in fact, the effect that you think is happening with these compounds. And if you can't reproduce that, to me, it just seems like this data is noise. Now, it doesn't mean that they're not going to be able to show successful data in their future trials. It just means that we're also kind of shooting in the dark, and we don't know whether or not success is going to occur. So to talk about upcoming catalysts, They mentioned in their corporate presentation that they released Alzheimer's phase one data in December of 2020. For the life of me, I cannot find this data. I have scoured Google and their website and I can't find it. So if somebody has this data, please send it to me. I would love to take a look. But they presumably presented phase one Alzheimer's data and they're initiating a phase two Alzheimer's trial in the fourth quarter of this year. The more near-term catalysts, they're looking at HLHS in Phase 1, and this is a relatively small population, only 100 annual patients. But the readout that I think is going to be most exciting is this aging frailty in Phase 2b, where the patient population is upwards of 8.1 million patients in the United States. So if they're able to show some benefits in a larger patient population in this Phase 2b, where they can show improvements in the six minute walk test or FEV1 or MMSE, anything is going to send the stock extremely high. And the reason for this is that it's trading on such a low market cap right now. So I put all the companies together here and I know this slide is very busy, but I updated all of the other ones too. And when I was thinking about it, as I was putting this together, we really don't see any cognitive improvements in like any of these companies. There are suggestions of improvements in cognition, like Cassava has shown, like Cyclerion has shown. But elector we've only seen biomarker data. Cortexime showed some improvement in cognitive function, but largely it was a biomarker study that they did. Anavex showed some improvement in cognitive function, but I believe that study was open-label. So all of these companies are sort of lacking when it comes to early, really convincing data. Yet they're trading, some of them, at very generous market capitalizations here. So for a very high risk, high reward play, I would say that the ones I talked about today have potential in that regard. And I've also discussed the risks associated with it, given the previous data that we've seen. So with LGBN, like I mentioned, they have some risks associated with them, given the fact that they're not able to show that the higher dose has a better effect than the medium dose. But the company's only trading at $102 million here. So... For that reason, it could be a high-risk, high-reward play that you want to make in anticipation of the upcoming aging frailty data. For Anobis, it's a similar thing. They've shown some proof-of-concept data, but I mentioned some problems with the reduced dose that they're using and the fact that the amyloid hypothesis has largely been disproven given all the previous data we've seen. But the company's only trading again at $164 million, and if they can show really good Phase two data, which some companies have been able to spin as positive, they could see an upward target of, say, $900 million in enterprise value, like we see here with Cortexime, Anivex, Elector, and even Cassava. So these companies might have ways of spinning their data as positive, even though that might not be the case. For me, I'm comfortable just with my small Cyclerion position in anticipation of that MELAS data. But if I'm feeling like in a gambling mood, maybe I'll take a position in Anovus for some kind of potential positive readout in the next few weeks. So that's my update on CNS companies. I think from this I'm going to move on to other sectors because I think I hammered this point pretty pretty well, that these companies don't often have really good data early, and therefore it's a very high risk, high reward play moving forward. To give a quick portfolio wrap-up, I'm sitting at now negative eight for the year. We saw a huge decline in the whole market, but the biotech sector itself saw a big decrease. The XBI went from plus 20% on the year all the way down to flat. And G is actually negative 10% for the year, so I'm actually kind of happy that I'm beating Kathy Woods in that regard. Some updates that I made, I took an additional position in Hepion, and companies that have been hammered the most, for me Trillium has really gone down a lot. They're down 30% for the year, and I think that's probably an opportunity to take a position if you haven't already in anticipation of some updates we're going to see before the end of March so keep that in mind and really that's it for the episode guys so thanks a lot for tuning in hit the like or subscribe button and feel free to donate at the Patreon link below I appreciate all the engagement that I get so please leave me a comment and let me know what you think about my analysis of these companies and I'm happy to uh to reconsider so thanks again everybody and we'll see you next time